Hi, it's Tom Slater. And before we get into this week's Spiked podcast, I want to tell you about Last Orders. It's Spiked's monthly nanny state podcast, where myself and Chris Snowden talk about the latest in public health killjoyism with the help of an invited guest. We've just relaunched the show in a brand new feed, and in the latest episode, we're joined by the comedian and Radio 4 star Simon Evans. We talk, among other things, about woke Coke users, the relative merits of booze and ketamine, and why the Scots are so angry at Jamie Oliver. To listen to that, and to make sure you never miss an episode, just search for Last Orders wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Now, on with the Spike podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me today are Spike's deputy editor and host of the Last Orders podcast, Tom Slater. Hello, hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. On this week's podcast, we discuss grooming gangs. I speak to free speech campaigner, Jakob Muchangama. And finally, we talk about the ban on swearing at Britain's biggest urban music festival. Fifteen girls, the oldest of whom was 17 and the youngest just 11, were abused by the gang of 20 men over a period of several years. Young, vulnerable white girls. The men, mostly of Pakistani heritage, were convicted of more than 120 offences. Rotherham, Oxford, Rochdale, Derby, Banbury, Telford, Peterborough, Aylesbury, Bristol, Halifax, Keithley, Newcastle, Huddersfield. This is a familiar scandal. 20 members of a grooming gang have been convicted of trafficking, drugging and raping 15 girls in Huddersfield, West Yorkshire. It follows a number of similar cases of mostly Asian grooming gangs targeting vulnerable white girls. So, Tom, is this a problem that we are unwilling to confront as a society because it keeps on happening? Completely. I think I think it's definitely the case that we have been for a very long time unwilling to talk about this because, as you mentioned, Fraser, this is not an isolated case. We all know that. This comes after Rotherham, after Oxford, after Rochdale, Derby, Telford, Newcastle and now Huddersfield in which you have what can really be described as kind of industrial scale in some cases, um, mm-hmm. pimping and raping of um, often young white working class girls by largely speaking British Pakistani men and for a very long time this was not only just not talked about it was actively hushed over and not investigated that was one of the things that came out of the horrendous Rotherham scandal was that effectively the police admitted to the fact that they shied away from investigating these cases the people involved didn't see justice for many many years because of the terror of being accused of racism given the fact that the profile of these men fit a certain type shall we say And even in terms of the media, you think Andrew Norfolk, of course, at the Times famously um, broke this story um, of Rotherham in 2011. But again, he himself has admitted that cases like this and tips like this were piling up on his desk for many years before he wanted to do something about it. And the reason for that is for a very long time, the question of um, Asian grooming gangs, Muslim grooming gangs, I'm sure we'll get into the kind of debate about the language was largely something that the only people who talked about it were Nick Griffin of the British National Party, Mm. racist, fascist party, um, and later on, uh, Tommy Robinson, the English Defence League. Um, You have various kind of different kind of online agitators talking about it now, but for a long time, it was just that was the only people who were talking about it. It was thought of as a kind of far-right scare story. What these horrible cases constantly remind us is when you shy away from having difficult discussions, which can sometimes mean touching on very, very touchy topics like this, um, then you allow them to be exploited by people who do want to, you know, demonise certain groups in society. I think all this talk about it being a far right trope, I think, just speaks to the fact that we allowed it to become one by not talking about it in a in a proper, careful, um, but direct fashion all these years. 
And I suppose it's it's one of those cases where you really can't ignore the ethnicity of the perpetrators. Research by the Quilliam Foundation said that 84% of those convicted of child grooming gang offences between 2005 and 2017 were South Asian. The majority of those, um, in their words, were of Pakistani origin with Muslim heritage. Um, The National Crime Agency says around 80% also. And, you know, while there are more white paedophiles in Britain, they tend to act alone, whereas the grooming gang phenomenon seems to be largely a a British-Asian phenomenon. Um, What do we make of that and the unwillingness to even say the truth of that? Well, I think the truth is important because this is such a specific thing. Mm. As you say, it's not just about paedophilia. It's about grooming gangs. So it's different. It's a different kind of thing you're dealing with. Uh, And the unwillingness to be direct and truthful about this has led to a a real mess. So you had last week, Sajid Javid getting into trouble for saying on Twitter, these sick Asian paedophiles are finally facing justice. I want to commend the bravery of the victims. For too long, they were ignored and not on my watch. And he was lambasted mm. as being racist. and for, Uncle Tom, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, really ugly backlash to him. But as it happens, he too wasn't being exactly specific. I don't think he was being racist, but mm. he was also sort of avoiding the point. There was a really fabulous article on Spiked by Hardeep Singh Uh, in which I just read the quote from it because it's so good. He says, in insisting on referring to grooming gangs as Asian, journalists are lending the perpetrators a cloak of anonymity. And I think this is really what has been going on uh, right from what Sarah Champion, the MP, was talking about in relation to Rotherham, now to the unwillingness to sort of report accurately on Huddersfield. Because there's such a sensitivity specifically around uh, the fact of these perpetrators being Muslim and about large numbers of them being British Pakistani men and whatever significance that might bring uh, you're just sort of making wild generalizations not getting to the heart of what's actually going on and crucially not giving the victims justice because the victims themselves have said that it was significant that these guys were from the backgrounds that they were from and it was significant that they were white working class girls Mm. so if you want to continue to allow this to just go on as if it was uh you know nothing serious or, or not pay it that much attention then let's keep talking about it in general terms but you've got to face the music at some point and say perhaps we need to have a conversation about why specifically it is these gangs of guys that are doing these things. So there seems to be a lot of silence around this issue, partly because these are the wrong kinds of perpetrators. But also there is a sense perhaps that these are the wrong kinds of victims too. Mm. These are white working class girls. They're not the kind of um, upper middle class celebrities or journalists that we're so used to uh, reading about, mm. you know, having experiences of knee touching and yeah. come ons in parliament or mm. anything like that no i know ella's written far more about this than i have but it is striking when you think about how much of the past year we've spent talking about a journalist having her knee touched by a member of parliament that we've talked about other journalists kind of having a sort of run-in with a mp who tried to kiss them etc um, and that dominating the news for days and days and days and most of us looking at it and thinking probably wasn't that bad or it certainly wasn't bad enough to you know generate this kind of level of media discussion and yet in this situation because these people are kind of the wrong kind of victims because they are young working class girls who don't have twitter accounts who don't have huge public profiles who aren't the kind of people who have instant access to the media and aren't the people who kind of set the narrative 
because of the it's inconvenient that they're there partly because of who they are and also partly because of as you say who these perpetrators are and just to touch on what ella was talking about quickly about the kind of you know in a way and hardy makes that point in that in that article very well which is the fact that if anything there is a problem with calling them asian insofar as they're not it's not necessarily all asians running around doing this it's not it's not indian hindu people running around doing this in the main and it's not also kind of Pakistani Christians doing this, specifically as Pakistani Muslims. And it's important to talk about that, firstly, because of the fact that in many cases, this is an aggravating factor in these crimes. You know, this came out in the Rotherham trial in particular, where specifically, um, according to these men's warped, horrible worldview, whilst, you know, Muslim women are there to be repressed, non-Muslim white women are fair game, effectively, you know, and that and they are, you know, some of the quotes coming out of them being referred to as white slags and all this kind of stuff really really grim stuff so it's important to talk about it there but it's also fascinating how even up to now with the Sajid Javid stuff suddenly that discussion about the word Asian has kind of become more into the front but for a very long time a lot of people felt oddly comfortable about talking about Asian you know effectively smearing vast numbers of people Mm. um, rather than talking about this being specifically a Pakistani Muslim thing it was almost like they would rather throw huge swathes of people under the bus than speak about this specifically in the end it felt like to try and protect islam from criticism because it's seen as something which is so dangerous to do nowadays and i think that's one of the this this is complicated and there's a lot of kind of conflicting anxieties and concerns when discussing this but i think it is kind of significant that almost in the pursuit of being of trying to kind of hush this over in the, in the name of anti-racism they, they ended up being kind of more racist in a weird sort of way in terms of how they ended up discussing this stuff you end up allowing people like tommy robinson to smear all muslims all asians all pakistani men as potential pedophiles as horrible people and by not being accurate about the kind of the specifics of this case i also just want to add on top of it that there's part of me um, that is really reacting to the not the panic about it because these are specific cases that are coming out and you read a list of all the different areas of the UK that are affected and there are more I read this big long list on the mm. BBC and thought you know you do think Christ I mean this is a really big problem on the other hand I know that Spiked and I have written for a long time about the paedophile panic and what we don't want to do is feed this idea that because of some cases, and they are just some cases, this is not a widespread epidemic, that we should then feed this decades-long fear of intergenerational relationships. This shouldn't be allowed to go into the hands of people like Tommy Robinson who say, don't let your kids near a Muslim guy. You know, all of that stuff, I think, is smouldering under the bottom of this, this panic, which really the, the main call is just to be specific follow justice and don't let this turn into more of a mess than it already is. But just quickly on that, I think what's kind of really interesting about this whole, you know, it's been going on for years now, this discussion, mm. and to the point at which we can actually talk about it semi-honestly, is the fact that that when all the time we weren't talking about the grooming gangs thing, the paedophile panic thing was right up there. You know, it was constant news. If you think about now, you know, Nick, the fantasist in the centre of the Operation Midland scandal, effectively, where he made all of these, as it turns out, completely made up accusations about MPs, you know, abusing, murdering, dismembering young boys like himself. All of this was, this was at its height when we weren't talking about a lot of these scandals, or at least they were kind of... So there was a strange thing where actually it, it just demonstrates how messed up the whole discussion of, of again kind of intergenerational stuff all the kind of paedophile issue is the fact that even when something quite when something quite clearly was going wrong in particular towns and cities um, across 
England when there was obviously something going on in which parents weren't being listened to, victims weren't being listened to, they were being turned away. Um, at the same time, it feels like the British political class could also run off on a witch hunt over things which were obviously just made up. Um, and I think that just shows how, given we do have this panic, it's just it's it just shows actually that even when some of these very real problems in the here and now are staring us in the face, some people don't seem to be able to deal with it. A great illustration of that is the fact that, you know, Tom Watson, who had long touted a conspiracy theory that there was a paedophile ring in Westminster and, you know, had accused fellow MPs and peers of being paedophiles. He is now the deputy leader of the Labour Party, whereas Sarah Champion, who started talking about this issue of Pakistani Muslim grooming gangs, was sacked from the front bench. Mm. You know, you're rewarded for talking about crimes that didn't happen and are not true, essentially making things up, and you're punished for trying to get to the truth of these matters. You're listening to The Spike Podcast. Spiked has no paywalls and no subscriptions. It's contributions from listeners and readers like you that keep us fighting for freedom and democracy. If you'd like to support Spiked, just go to spiked-online.com and hit the donate button. Up next, blasphemy. This week, voters in Ireland go to the polls in a referendum which could overturn its constitutional ban on blasphemy. Until recently, blasphemy laws were also on the books in Denmark, They had largely lain dormant until 2017, when a man was arrested for posting a video of himself burning the Koran. I caught up with free speech campaigner Jakob Muchengama, who succeeded in overturning Denmark's blasphemy laws. I started off by asking him when he first realised that free speech needed to be defended. I grew up in, in one of the most liberal, tolerant societies in the world, Denmark, where no one ever thought about free speech because it was just as natural as breathing the air. Um, and then, uh, of course, we had the cartoon crisis, uh, and that was the wake-up call for me, and that's very much what has shaped my uh, both my interest and understanding of free speech, because it was such a dramatic uh, event, but also because I, it dawned on me how vulnerable free speech really is. Um, and it was a, it was a cartoon of, of Muhammad. It was a cartoon, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, 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 I speak of this as if everyone will know, you know, it's yeah. the publication of, of 12 uh, cartoons of, of, of Prophet Muhammad on the 30th of September 2005 in the Danish newspaper Jyllandsposten, which in 2006 caused an international crisis with scores of, of, of people have died so far. Lots of the protagonists still living with with uh, 24-7 security on Al-Qaeda death threat, death lists and so on. Suddenly you had, you know, progressive who had been sort of the champions, supposedly, of, of free speech, who had been very skeptical of religious dogma, um, rejecting the idea that religious dogma should be above sort of free speech. And then suddenly you had them turn around and say, wait a minute, you can't offend religious feelings of a supposedly marginalized uh, minority. And, and that, you know, continued even after it became clear that people were willing to kill people for just, you know, publishing a cartoon. We, we don't have official blasphemy laws in Britain, and you've succeeded in overturning the laws in Denmark, am I right in saying? Uh, well, actually, we succeeded in, in, in getting them repealed last year. That was, that was frightening as well, because it, has, it had basically been a dead letter. Uh, no one had been prosecuted since uh, 19 the early 1970s, no one had been convicted since the 40s. And it was assumed a dead letter by all. But then a guy burned the Quran. 
shortly before that, sort of a, a group of legal, independent legal experts had said, well, we shouldn't abolish the blasphemy ban because if someone burns holy books, it would be nice to be able to prosecute them. What they hadn't included in their report was the fact that a Danish artist had actually burned the Bible on national news on the equivalent Danish equivalent of BBC. And lots of people had filed complaint to the police and, and, the, and the chief prosecutor just said, you know, we're not going to... We're not going to charge him because that's artistic freedom and so on. Yeah. Uh, and now suddenly they wanted to change things around because they were so afraid of a new cartoon crisis. Um, but we were able, my organization, I, I, I mean, I, I like to be modest normally, but I, I think that I can say that we actually played a pivotal role, maybe the decisive role in, 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 in getting the votes out in, among MPs to to have uh, to have the blasphemy ban abolished rather than revived so so that that was that was nice but yes until very recently we did have a blasphemy ban and of course you know some of the the thinking behind you know why even a liberal country would want to have laws against blasphemy is that it would protect against terrorist outrages that it would help a multicultural society almost cohere but why is that thinking wrong do you think yeah i think there are both naive and cynical reasons so the the, the cynical reasons are you know let's not poke around this anymore because we don't want terrorists come to denmark and blow things up uh, and then there's sort of the, the naive or but but even uh, you know perniciously naive <laughs> idea that some people who who have a particular skin color or a particular religion should be shielded against uh, offense whereas others uh, shouldn't i don't know where that leaves me you know uh, my father's a black african muslim and my other, my mother's a, <laughs> a white uh, uh european christian so 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 maybe Maybe I should tolerate if someone said something about Christianity, but should get absolutely outraged if someone said something <laughs> about Islam, which of course is nonsensical. Um, but I think it's you know, it, it, Denmark is a secular liberal democracy among the the, the most uh, liberal secular in the world. But we weren't always so. In fact, if, if you go back to the Enlightenment, Denmark was very much sort of the the horror story that people like Tom Paine. And, earlier Whigs like Robert Molesworth wrote about sort of to warn about the dangers of absolutist rule and and and, and also about you know what happens when when you sort of mix religion uh, and politics because Lutheranism had become sort of the state church that that suppressed everyone in in Denmark uh, and and that's a you know in a historical point of view that's a that's a recent past so so it's, you know so I think we should really not take for granted that we're a secular liberal democracy with with free speech and those who want to become members of the Danish society should accept the admission of joining becoming full members of a liberal uh, society is that you know you don't get to have uh, any vetoes uh, sort of hecklers vetoes or jihadist vetoes you know you can have your ideas you know freedom of religion is protected but freedom of religion does not entail you give you the right to tell others to 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 stop uh, offending your beliefs on the subject of blasphemy maybe even throughout Europe there is a kind of unofficial cultural pressure that acts as a kind of informal blasphemy law. I mean, is that just as significant, do you think? I think that it's very significant. I think, if, you know, if you read someone like George Orwell, he, he puts it very clear, and you know, John Stuart Mill as well, that, you know, the prevailing orthodoxy uh, <laughs> among the among the elites about what, you know, you can and cannot say acts as at least a big barrier to free speech in, uh, and, and very much so in, in democratic societies that don't formally prosecute all kinds of 
uh, of speech that, that that very much plays in. And, and But I would say when it comes to Islam, fear obviously also plays uh, an important role. You cannot blame journalists and people working in the arts for being afraid and having to take into account security measures. But I think it's absolutely crucial that they're honest about it, that, you know, and not, and not say, oh, we did this out of respect or because, you know, uh, this or that. Just say, come out and say, Listen, we would have liked to 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 do to, you know publish a cartoon of Muhammad or whatever, but we were afraid of of doing it because that you know that then shows where the red lines are, mm. uh, and and you know I can respect that. I mean, obviously, it, a lot of these religious conflicts are to do with Islam in today's yeah. world. You know, some very right wing people might describe this as a kind of Islamist takeover, but that's not quite what's happened, yeah, is it uh, really. You know. Um, <clears throat> The current Danish centre-right government has introduced more restrictions on free speech than any other since uh, since, since the Second World War. And and a lot of the people that, that I was campaigning with during the cartoon crisis, who said who said on the right, who said you know free speech is absolute, you know we can't give in. This is an Enlightenment principle, blah blah blah. They've just turned around and said you know when it comes to Muslims who have extreme views. Oh, we can't be naive, uh, mm. you know. But the, the the arguments that they that they uh, that, that that they use, you know, are just the distorted mirror image of those that came from from the sort of progressive left uh, during the cartoon crisis. I think it's it's very depressing uh, to 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 see how unprincipled many people think uh, on, on on free speech. Performers at the music festival Wireless have been banned from swearing, wearing offensive clothing and making vulgar gestures when it returns in 2019. It's part of Haringey Council's new licensing conditions. Surely hip-hop has always offended the uptight. But what do we make of this new plan? It's crazy. It's really the kind of not in my backyard to mm. the extreme. Mm. The... F- fact is wireless festival been going on for quite a while uh, i grew up in finsbury park there's been lots of music festivals in that area people get really really pissed uh, quite a lot of young people show a lot of skin there's some very popular acts that mm. perform there all in all everyone has a good time mm. right apart from if you're a grouchy uh resident who has decided that this one weekend of the year is too much to bear as well as banning uh not just people from wearing attendees from wearing vulgar t-shirts whatever that means they've also stipulated that performers should not be allowed to mention anything rude in their act or make rude gestures (laughs) (laughs) which really could mean anything and they've shut the festival down by half an hour so it used to go until 10 now it's only 9 30 the key thing to say is this is happening right across london there's Mm. a real clamp down on nightlife and you don't have to be a kind of pill popping all night sort of a party animal to realize that there's a bit of a problem going on in which the kind of one of the most famous cities in the world mm. is stopping a world-class act from performing past bedtime it's just quite nuts to me i mean yeah it's completely pathetic isn't it i suppose and it's it's interesting you mentioned that you know this is happening throughout the re- the rest of london i mean even hackney council yeah. which is has some of the best nightlife spots in in london has said they don't want to open any new bars, you know, that are going to stay open past 12 o'clock. I mean, how on earth is London supposed to be a global 24-hour city if, you know, we have these ridiculous restrictions on when we can go out until? No, it is absolutely ridiculous because, again, it just kind of undermines the entire point of some of these areas, some of these venues. Mm. You think about Wireless Festival, I mean, it wasn't always this way, but for most of the time it's existed, it's an explicitly hip-hop 
um, R&B festival, yeah. a lot of grime music, all that kind of thing. Um, the idea that it's going to be a swearing ban, something like that. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. But um, as you've both been said, it's really knitted in with this kind of war on nightlife, um, the way in which that increasingly um, local um, councils will take, you know, the complaints of a handful of kind of not in my backyard type people um, really and clamp down on clubs, on venues, um, really tighten up licenses for even just pubs that want to open late, a yeah. little bit later, which really <laughs> is really difficult these days. Um, and what's interesting about it is actually there's there's part of this which kind of knits in with some of the gentrification stuff like you hear some mm. of the people who are actually who run clubs and, and venues talk about this they say that they never get complaints from the council estates sometimes they do but and if anything they're far more likely to take those seriously because a lot of people don't have choice sometimes in terms of where they're placed but more often than not it's the people who move in the gentrifiers people like me effectively um, <laughs> who are um, causing all of the problems effectively and it's just it's such a shame because as you say if you go to any other proper kind of you know international city you don't have this kind of ridiculous killjoy attitude because it's recognized even by a lot of the people who live there that this is one of the things that makes the city special well it's interesting how this isn't just about sort of classic anti-social behavior so like you know beer cans being left around and people being rowdy in the street but they've taken on the language of the perpetually offended so the fact that it's about vulgar gestures and um rude music and that kind of stuff that's you normally see happen in bands from students unions but mm. is presumably being put forward by adults and i'd wager adults of a certain age <laughs> in this mm. case who are sort of taking on that uh, overly sensitive perpetually offended language and i think that's definitely something new it's not just about grouchy old people who don't want people puking in the streets it's this sort of political use of the kind of culture of offense well, I, th- I think that's right it's worth noting that haringey was one of the first councils to be taken over by momentum mm. so you like uh, to pose as quite kind of youthy and fun loving yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they love stormzy but until 9 30 no. yeah. <laughs> and no swearing You've been listening to The Spike Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a rating and a review. It really helps people find the show. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.